HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello, you're here with the Heritage Radio Network on Sunday afternoon. We're about to get into the Farm Report, and you're here with Heather Hyman and Brian Kenny to introduce our two farmers this week. How's it going, Brian? Heather, it's always a pleasure. It's a little overcast out here in California, but a day above ground beats the alternative. Um, you know what I was wishing I had this morning was some Edward's ham. I know. I wish I had some of his bacon frying up right now, to be honest. I could definitely use some of that today. Straight from I, the Berkshire Hogs. There you go. I think that's the best, finest uh, pork products of the southeast, as far as I'm concerned. Definitely. Right out of Surrey, Virginia. Um, they're our sponsor today, aren't they? They definitely are. Thank you, Edwards and uh, Surrey Farms, for all you do to uh, promote non-commodity pork. And one of the beauties of the Farm Report is that in one of our themes is biodiversity. And it's funny how abstract uh, themes like that become very, very real in the light of uh, current events. And today we're going to find out what mule feet, lucky leprechauns, red wattles, mortgage lifters, and hillbillies have in common. Uh, We're going to be talking to Larry Sorrell of Glasgow, Kansas, who's a pig producer, pork producer, and Brenda Smith of Michigan City, Indiana, who grows uh, heirloom tomatoes and makes different kinds of uh, preserves. And all the great things that come along with anything heirloom and biodiverse. So we'll get into it, starting off with uh, Brenda Smith. So thanks, Brian, and we'll talk to you next week. Have a fine day, Heather. You as well. Take care. We're here with Brenda Smith of Clayton's in Michigan City, Indiana. We're happy to have you here today, Brenda. How's everything? Oh, everything is just fine here, Heather. Great. Same here. Um, To get started, I'm wondering, what is the history of your land? Well, here in northwest Indiana, it's uh, probably the early 1800s. All of this area was part of the Potawatomi Indian Nation, and so we've got a deep heritage going back there. And then around 1830s, you know, the, the area was divided up, and we were given a wonderful French name, meaning by the lakes, because we're close to Lake Michigan. Mm-hmm. And it, we have rich farmland. You know, here in Indiana, we have about over 60,000 farms and over 15 million acres under farmland here in Indiana. So we're, we're a pretty diverse area for farming. With a rich history, indeed. Oh, yeah. How did you become connected to this part of the world? <laughs> well, in 1983, um, I left my home in uh, mid-Michigan, 
because of a job transfer and came to Michigan City and put down roots, and, and the rest is history. I never left. And when you say put down roots, you sure mean that. You've definitely yeah. put down plenty of roots in, in on your land. Yeah. What do you have going on currently? Well, most of our crops uh, are, you know, tomatoes and, and warm season crops that we raise, and they're still in the greenhouse. That uh, We don't plant anything outright yet because our last frost date is, like May 15th, uh, typically around here, and, and the, the nights are cold and nothing's going to grow if it's below 50 degrees anyhow, and it, we're hovering at 45 around here. So we're busy planting, and uh, we've got a lot of our lettuce and kale, and um, that's all up and growing and having to weed all of that. So, And, and we're soggy around here. Uh, the garden is underwater, so... Most of the gardens right now are underwater, and I couldn't get them even if I wanted to. Right. So you still got a few weeks. I, I oh, hear yeah. typically it's Mother's Day weekend that people start planting. Is that yeah. usually the case? Yes. And um, of, you mentioned tomatoes, and I know the heirloom tomatoes you said. Do you know about how many varieties that you currently have in your greenhouse? Uh, about 56 different varieties from 20, 30 different regions around the world. Remarkable. And would you say, out of all these heirloom strains, which of them have the best taste, or which of them to you are your favorite flavor? Is that even possible to answer? Well, yeah, we've got our favorites. We, I absolutely love Black Prince, which is a smoky, salty, uh, it's a small tomato. It's just a wonderful dark, dark purplish brown with a deep, deep red, blood red center. And it's got that smoky, salty taste. And then tangerine is a small, like a two, three ounce size tomato. It looks like it's tangerine, and it's got wonderful fruity citrus flavor. It almost kind of makes you think you're biting into a piece of citrus fruit. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. And where do these lend themselves best to? I mean, sauces, just salads, just strictly biting into the tomato themselves? What did you, I didn't quite hear that. Um, What do all these heirloom varieties lend themselves best to? I mean, are certain good for sauces, certain good just to bite into, like an apple? (laughs) the best is right right out of the garden for table use for wonderful salads. You don't need much. You can make absolutely wonderful salads just with a little balsamic vinegar and and, uh, mozzarella cheese and sliced tomatoes. But I do a tremendous amount of different types of salsas. And they, they all give a different flavor. I use just like reds and purples and blacks and into our red salsas. And then we have yellow salsas that you just use the white tomatoes, the yellow tomatoes and orange tomatoes and the light pink variety. And they, they tend to make a fruitier salsa. And, but they're wonderful. They're not keepers. Heirloom tomatoes are not good shippers or keepers, and that's why, you know, they're not, you don't see a lot of them in the stores. Right. So where do you, I mean, do you produce enough that you're able to sell it locally? Where, what do you do with your, your vegetables once they come to fruition? Well, there are several higher-end restaurants that love to have my tomatoes, but I normally sell most of them at farmer's markets. We do farmer's markets up in New Buffalo, Michigan, and then hopefully one here in Michigan City 
on the waterfront. It's going to be a brand new one that starts up this year. So I think that's going to be a nice outlet for us. But I have tomato groupies that come from all over just to buy the tomatoes from the farm. Wow. And do you share seeds? I mean, do you have a collection of seeds if people were interested? Oh, sure, because I keep all of my seeds. They're open-pollinated varieties, so you can keep your seed and the true plant. Wow. Uh, The same plants because it's open pollinated but it's it I save for you know they'll last for 5 6 7 years if they're kept you know in a in the right environment. And now so in a sense you are considered a seed saver are you open to sharing these seeds if there are other people trying to recreate these heirloom varieties in places oh, yeah. all across the country? I love to do that. <laughs> Okay, well, um, we will definitely, you know, try and get some people to uh, call in and get your contacts so that we can continue to grow these heirloom varieties, you know, in small um, farms, just like the one we have growing on the roof of this radio network and this radio station. Yeah, so that would be great. Well, we have to protect the heritage of our heirloom vegetables, not just tomatoes, but these some of these date back to the 1700s that I have these plants. And it's just wonderful, the, the flavor that you get and the, just the ambiance of having something that, that is that, you know, old. Yeah, rich in history. I yeah. mean, come on, this the story that you could tell around the table when you're eating the salad is uh, enough oh, right there. Yeah, bring back <laughs> slow food memories. <laughs> Indeed. Now, are your heirloom varieties more finicky growers, you, you would say, than um, the standard? Yeah. Yes, they definitely are, and that's why a lot of people, I don't think, uh, raise them. I mean, they're they're picky, they're finicky, they're they typically don't have the higher production like your hybrids, because that's all been, you know, they they bred the taste out just to get a keeper mm-hmm. or a tomato that's going to last on the shelf or just look shiny and <laughs> look shiny and beautiful and and. And it, they are harder to grow. They they get a lot of diseases <laughs> because those diseases haven't been, you know, bred out of them. So, but they're, it's worth it just to have the taste and the flavor and to have the beauty of, of the tomato itself. No, so how how much experience have you had raising these heirloom varieties? Because it seems like you, you're getting a successful yield for finicky growing. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, I mean, I brought some of my expertise from my mother she's 92 years old and and uh not that we ever saved any seeds back then but we certainly could have but we we never saved them back then but i got into raising heirlooms strictly heirlooms about 10 years ago when i found i just found out how wonderful they were and started reading about them, and I said, well, that's it. I'm not going to raise anything else. Wow. I mean, that's lucky for you that, you know, you had that influence to really give you a direction as to where you oh, wanted to yeah. go with things. And we've got, we raised some of the Ark of Taste, yeah. too, and those are the ones that are endangered. And and I've had wonderful results with some of those, with the uh, our red fig tomato, for instance. That is one of the most a beautiful, small, pear-like, tomato, very pro- prolific producer, and I use them strictly for sun-dried tomatoes hmm. and, uh, you know, to dry them and to keep
keep them for winter use. And you dry them yourself. You leave them yeah. out in the sun and they get well, dry. Well, I do oh. leave them out in the sun. They have to be covered. We don't have a lot of sun, uh, really intense, intense sun. So a lot of them get put uh, into the greenhouse because they dry better in there. Sounds like a pretty um, well-thought-out operation to well, get, you know, small, the... But well, it works for sure. Um, now, who are the members of your production chain that you interact with that are most important to your survival? Well, I think it would probably have to be my mother. Uh, it, she brings, you know, her heritage recipes, you know, to the table, and those are some of the recipes I still use. And naturally, my grandchildren, Emma and Nathan, they help with everything from planting to picking and processing the crops. So they label the jars. And without them, I wouldn't have that life-giving energy that I get from them to do all that I do because I'm actually a one-person operation most of the time except for... The help of four generations. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Um, how will changing global weather patterns affect the foods you grow? Well, you know... I can't really say that. I think the ch- seasons are changing, definitely. Uh, we didn't have, we don't have the long winters like we used to have mm-hmm. back when I was young. Mm-hmm. I think things are warming up, although you couldn't tell from this year. But it would, I think that we are seeing a longer growing season, which is great in this neck of the woods. We can always use a, a, even a few more weeks added to that, and I think that's what this is actually doing. The warming of the, you know, the global warming. Well, at least it's working in someone's favor, right? That's it. <laughs> and of um, course, we've got a lot more water, though, too. <laughs> um, what tools are most useful for you to overcome nature's obstacles? For instance, you said your 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 beds right now are, you know, overflowing with water. Oh yeah, nature is not sometimes not very kind at this time of the year. Very hard to get in the fields. Very hard to. Like right now, literally, if you were to walk in the fields, you'd sink up to your ankles in mud. Quick mud. Yes. And so that's always, always a challenge. And then, of course, you know, we've had some bad storms and hail and freezing rain and sleet all in one day. And, you know, that can kill a crop real, real fast. Right. Definitely. Um, is there a, a secret to your trade that you'd share with us? Well, you know, I don't know. Uh, I'm really particular about, you know, the crops I raise, as you know. Mm-hmm. And I like to think of myself as having little secrets to success, like saving the seeds from year to year and and how to do that. And, you know, people can, you know, learn how to save their seeds if they have open pollinated varieties and from year to year and you know you try to coax up the little tiny seedlings to grow and and maybe the secret family recipes for you know preserves and stuff Uh, I think my key is my family and support really I don't really have any little teeny secrets that 
Well, only as, I know. Well, um, I mean, your experience is secret, you know, enough. Um, maybe there's a time when we could have you on again to teach, you know, people in these urban areas that are farming and trying to, you know, produce these heirloom varieties how to best save these seeds so that we can all continue to do what you and oh, your yeah, mother I'd have done. To. So that will be something for the future to keep in mind. Definitely. Knowing where your food comes from and being able to say that you produce something that you've eaten, I mean, must be the best feeling in the world. Oh, yeah. You've got to get back to basics. You've got to get back to the earth. Knowing exactly where your food comes from is, to me, very important. Traceability is key, indeed. Yes, it is. What is American food to you? (laughs) Boy, that's kind of a hard to describe around here especially we have such a diverse melting pot of cultures mm-hmm. in the midwest and they all influence our american cuisine so to speak i was raised on foods cooked in cast iron pots and preserved in stone crocks and the wonderful salmon that comes out of lake michigan uh when, you know we smoked the salmon and and all of those cultures settling here, blending with ours, makes a huge uh, impact and I think a bounty of American foods. I just think all of it melting together, how can you not say that it's not all American food? No, I mean, I, I agree with that. Um, no. What interaction, if any, does your farm have with wildlife? <laughs> no. Well, the farm itself, where we raise most of it, we've got deer and rabbits and fox, and, and you know, they've all tried our patience. But, uh, you know, we, we have methods. We, we don't shoot any animals or anything. We put up fences and try our best, and, you know, we feed them, and they feed us later on, and if you know what I mean. <laughs> but we have, <laughs> oh, between 70 and 100 Canadian geese here at the lake, where we have a lot of our test gardens. Wow. Oh, my. That's not good. It's been a true test <laughs> to keep them out of, we have hoops. What do they say? Cranberries, too. If you put cranberries on the ground, doesn't that sometimes help those Canadian geese I go away? I have tried everything. Wow. I have literally tried everything, and it, it can be a nuisance problem, but we've constructed hoop, hoop houses over all of our test beds here, and that really keeps them out but they love the white clover we plant white clover to bring the bees in right great between the rows Mm -hmm. and i think they can smell it (laughs) (laughs) they must um and then now if you had to relocate your farm where would you go and if you if you were thinking about relocating your farm would it be because it may help your your crops grow better well i would have to say i do not think that we would relocate, but if we had to, I'd go back to Michigan. The, the farmland there where I was raised is deep, dark, rich, loamy soil. Here we tend to have a lot of clay, mm-hmm. and so that's a big challenge, too, uh, to work with. It doesn't drain as well, and we have to bring in a tremendous amount of uh, organic matter into the soil every year mm-hmm. just to keep it lighter and airier. But I think I would go back to my roots, back to Michigan, if I had to. All right. Well, Brenda, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, and we hope to have you on again and really maybe teach these people um, in more urban areas how to best preserve the seeds that they get from their crops this year. Yes, and that, that would be 
that would be just an exciting thing to do, and I think people would really enjoy that. And it would benefit us all in the long yeah. run. All right. Well, thanks, and um, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thank Have a great you. Bye. rest of your day. Bye. So moving on with our farm report, we're here with Larry Sorrell of uh, Lazy S Farm in Glasgow, Kansas. How are you today, Larry? Very good, very good. Wonderful. Well, happy to have you on this uh, Sunday. It's beautiful. How about where it is um, in Kansas? Oh, we've been getting plenty of rain. Well, is that a, that's a good thing. April showers bring those May flowers. <laughs> right. Have you seen any yet? Not yet. It's, uh, it's been raining a little too much yet. need a little sun. Yeah, that's the word all around. Uh, just spoke with uh, Brenda of Michigan City, Indiana, and she's saying the same thing. Her crops are all overflowing with water. Right, right. So even though it's well documented that swine flu is not transmittable by consuming pork products, do you think that consumer ignorance and the general culture of fear monitoring in America right now is going to result in you know a negative effect on your pork business? It. Uh, it may be for a while, but I I, I think the media is, is making a, a pretty good point that it, it doesn't come from swine. So I think uh, with a little more education, they'll they'll realize it doesn't. Yeah, hopefully we'll be able to promote that a little bit more than just the word swine and pig in right. next to the word flu. Right. So what is the history of the land where you are in Glasgow, Kansas? Okay, we we purchased this forty acres in nineteen seventy. And uh, <clears throat> we have about, where, where we were at, it was just a, a house when we started, and uh, we've gone from there. We've, we had to remodel a house very, quite a few times. We have, uh, we raised nine children here, so. Nine children. So when you say we, you're talking about a wife a and wife. nine kids. <laughs> wow. And are your children working with you on the farm at all, or have they ever? No. Uh, well, they, <clears throat> they worked with us very uh, all the time they were going through school, but uh, everyone now has uh, has their own thing. Uh, we have one son that is a farmer, but he's just ingrained, and, and so he... Uh, you source any of your feed from him? No. <laughs> that would maybe you could get the family discount. There you go. That would work. So yeah. their allowance was basically working on the farm with you as they grew up, and then they said, we're going to move on to other things. Right. They, well, someone's uh, got to keep your family farm alive. Yeah, they realized that there was uh, more money working in, in the city, I guess. All right. Well, hopefully we can bring someone back to your land and uh, keep the tradition that started in the 70s going. Right. Um, well, how did you become connected to the part of the world where you are, which is Glasgow, Kansas? Okay, we were uh, born and raised not more than 20 miles from here, so we've been we've been in this area all our lives, and and uh, uh, it's just just that's the way we've we've never ventured away, I guess. Yeah, well, I mean that's very common. I haven't moved too far from where I grew up myself, um, and now. Uh, do do your neighbors or the people in your community know what you do and um, what's going on on your lands? Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how the community could somehow be involved with what you're producing or how they can help what you do? Okay, uh, our uh, our uh, hog uh, project, what you might call it, is uh, pretty well known around here. We've had quite a few write-ups in the paper and... Uh, all our friends and kind of pass the word around that what we do and 
how our <clears throat> quality of our product is. And they do they try and purchase direct from you? Do they they visit you at the farm? We we have some uh, that purchase direct, but uh, a lot of it, uh, it uh, we sell at uh, farmers markets. And uh, our what we uh, sell at farmers markets are just sausages and and uh, uh, our call sow program. Our, all our uh, main cuts goes to Heritage Foods. Nice. Um, so about that the that um, farmers market is that once a week. Our farmers market, it'll it'll run about uh, twenty weeks in the summer. It'll start the last weekend in May and go through to October. Nice. So I bet you're getting ready to um, start up that soon. Yeah, about a month from now. So you'll be the busy man. What day? What day of the week is that? Saturday. Saturdays. Yep. Well, yep. that sounds like fun. Um, to you, why is farming and farmers so important, especially in our country? Well, uh, farming is you know is is basically the the lifeline of the country. The farmers feed the people, and, and we've got to have those farmers uh, in the country. No, I, I agree completely. And um, if you could write one farm issue into law, what would it be? And uh, I think that uh, if, if we had a uh, farm law that would uh, help out the older farmers that don't have uh, relation to come into the farming, give them some kind of a a break on their taxes and stuff when they sell out, uh, that they could start a, a young person into farming. Uh, right now, it, it is so expensive for a young person to start. If he doesn't have some kind of a connection, a dad or an uncle or something, he's, he's pretty well out in the cold. Right, or unless he's working with a big factory farm or the government with subsidies in that way. Right. Well, if he's working for a factory farm, they're not going to get him in. He might be working on a farm, but he's not going to be uh, saying he's his own boss or whatever. Right, and you definitely are your own boss. Right. So you need that help. Right. Now, are there? how many people do you have working on the farm, and who are these people? Are, are they friends, uh, the family, or? No, just uh, my wife and myself. So we need for... to get you a youngin' in there to help move <laughs> things along and to yeah, keep things. really keep things going now who would you say are the the members of your production chain that you interact with that are most important to your survival well uh our sales uh go to heritage foods and if it wouldn't be for heritage foods they're, they're our main key for our for our production and and uh our sales so it's and, making sure you've got an outlet for those pigs. That's right, most important. Right. What, if it wasn't for that outlet, you know, we wouldn't be able to keep producing hogs because uh, there's uh, if you're not a very very large uh, concern, uh, it's pretty tough making it in the hog business today. I completely understand, especially with the you know heritage and very rare breed that you're raising, the red wattle. Right. You need people that are educated and interested in keeping this breed alive to, to, to right. buy the, the red bottle right. pork. So right. um, you're lucky that you have a group to help you with that for sure. Very, very lucky. <laughs> That's great. And uh, we're happy to be a part of that here at the Heritage Radio Network as well. Um, what is the DNA that makes up the foundation for your food? Our, uh, we have uh, red wattle hogs. and They were almost extension, extinct in the 1950s. And uh, we started uh, 
probably in 2000, uh, 2001 in that area that we started uh, raising the red wattles, and uh, we uh, we started a breeding proje- project that we we had to go to about five or six different states that, to get our breeding stock started. And uh, right now we have uh, about five different bloodlines that we can uh, pick from that uh, keeps us going. Now, what made you interested in raising the red wattle breed? Well, I'd been in, I'd been raising hogs all my life, and uh, when we retired, we uh, we just uh, got interested in heritage breeds, and and we picked the red wattle to get started with. And the red wattle was there something about it that attracted you to it? I mean, is there a characteristic about the red wattle that makes it fun for you to raise? Are they nice on the farm? Uh, they're a very docile hog, um, and uh, we we, <clears throat> we uh, like the looks of them, and uh, their meat quality and, and uh, is very good, and and uh, that's basically why we picked the red wattles. Now, does the name red wattle have anything to do with the color of the meat that's actually produced with the finished with the finished product, the finished hog, once it's cut up into its parts? Is it more red? Well, the the meat from the red wattle is, is a dark red color, and it has marbling in it, and uh, the marbling is what makes a, a, a better taste than a normal uh, hog. Oh, definitely. Well, and that's just uh, the same probably with any heritage breed. It's going to have very unique taste characteristics. Right, right. Um, would you say that there, do you have um, specific taste profiles that you can attribute to the red wattle pigs? As far as what, what do you? I mean, like, you know, let's say you were trying to describe a, a red wine. <laughs> are, oh, there, are there any notes, any taste notes that, that you pick up on when you're eating your pork? Well, you, you've got a distinct different uh, taste. Than, uh, than, they're a lot moister, and uh, you've got that moist uh, and texture that really brings out the flavor in the pork. Now, what... Do you think that these changing global weather patterns are going to affect the activity on your farm? Uh, uh, and have they yet? Yeah, well, it, it gets a little worse every year. The heat, but what affects uh, growing pork outside is you, you got to have the environment that uh, is going to be able to sustain the, the hogs. You can't have uh, ex- <coughs> intensive heat, you know, and the uh, very cold winters and stuff like that 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 uh, ha- uh, makes the production of the of the hog harder. Uh, the, the milking of the of the hogs is what you have to look at, and and if you have an ex- uh, very warm or very cold weather, it's it's hard to keep the sows milking good. What what was that word you said? Is it milking? Right. That. They have milk for the piglets, you know. What exactly does that mean? Well, it's the nourishment for the piglets. Oh, like the milking from the mothers. Right. Oh, okay. Definitely right. can understand that. Right. Um, now, are there tools that are most useful for you to overcome nature's obstacle? I know you had just said that, you know, it's been a lot of rainwater on your farm. So is there yeah. something that helps you um, d- dilute the water or dry it up or? Well, what we do, what? What our main deals for hogs are is you, you got to have uh, shelter, you 
you got to have uh, a fresh water for them, and you <clears throat> you got to have shade in the summertime, and mm-hmm. that's basically water, shade, and shelter. Water, you shade, know, and shelter. Yeah. Well, those are tools that you can definitely build in terms of the shade and the shelter. Right. The water, we got to just make sure you always have a access right. to clean water supply. And now, um, because of the particularities of, uh, you know, this heritage breed that you raise, is there a, a secret or a key to which uh, only you know? Well, I I think uh, your key, main keys are uh, you got to have experience and, and management. If you don't have those two, uh, it's pretty hard to raise anything, I, I would say. Now, what about your farm, if anything, keeps you up at night? Uh, I, I think about the high cost of production a lot. Uh, the, uh, I hope you don't have nightmares about that. <laughs> <laughs> have what? N- any nightmares about that. Nightmares? Well, uh, you got to think about that. And uh, what I think about most is the uh, ability of these young people to be able to... Uh, to make a living uh, on their farms and, and to uh, be able to be profitable and, and with their production. Right, and we want to keep you, not just the young people, but the people that have been doing this and have the experience profitable as well. Right. So, um, now, has technology hurt or helped your farm? Well, I think with uh, email and computers and fax machines, it, it just, uh, the communication is a lot more faster and the technology is, a lot faster, and, and uh, if you if you're needing anything, you can get it right away. And I think that's probably one of the main things. Isn't that amazing? Really, access to information is right. is great. I completely agree. Um, who are your top buyers? Uh, Heritage Food is our um, one and only buyer. Uh, they they sell to chefs and restaurants, which which uh, puts our our product out. Yeah, nationwide, that means. I mean, people that you've never even heard their names, I'm sure, have tried your product and loved it. So that must feel really, feel really good. And What really makes you feel good is you, if you get a call from some chefs in California that's using our product and, and is really commenting on it. That's what's really... <laughs> have you ever had visitors or, or chefs come to your farm? Yes, we've had, we've had chefs from New York come, and, and uh, we have several people that have come and looked at our the way we raise our hogs and and uh, yeah, we're taking care of them and and uh, that type of thing. Great. Um, now, what would you? What is your definition of American food? Well, I think American food is uh, grown by independent farmers. It's not not brought in from other countries. That's that's my definition of American food. I would say that makes a lot of sense. Keep it domestic. Right. That would mean American. Right. And now, um, what interaction, if any, does your farm have with wildlife? We have a lot of wildlife around here. I don't know if you what kind of interaction you'd say, but we've got just about anything you'd want to look at. <laughs> we yeah. have, oh, we've got turkeys and white-tailed deer, and, and we do have bobcats. Oof, that doesn't yeah. sound too good for the pigs. No, it's, it's <laughs> not too good for the pigs, but we, we have... Uh, Parameter fences where they can't get in, but it, it works. <clears throat> Have they ever gotten in? Uh, <laughs> years ago, they've gotten in where we 
where we before we put the fences up. Oh no, that must have been a scary morning, yeah. <laughs> or middle of the night. Is that when the bobcats come out? Yeah, that's where they come out in the middle of the night. Ah, <laughs> well, um, um, what is the highest high you've had on your farm? The highest high. Has there okay. been like a, a great moment? I I would say our biggest high over the years is just being able to raise our children uh, in a country setting and uh, letting letting them uh, get responsibility and, and a worth ethic. And uh, I, I think that's the, the main thing that we've, we've gone through the years and tried to do. All right. And now uh, what about the lowest low? Has there been a really sad or... Yeah. We lost our house to a fire in 1980, and that kind of put things to Oh, well, I would say. Jeez, and did you have, how many kids did you have at that point? We had nine. Oh, my gosh. What did yeah. you do? Oh, we just, uh, the neighbors pitched in, and, and uh, we wow. re- rebuilt it. And, that's and, that's uh, really, that's really awesome that you had that help. I mean, how yeah. do we know how the fire started? Well, we were gone at the fair at the time, and it started from the upstairs, so we don't, nobody knows how it started. Everybody was gone. So. Oh, man. Well, I hope you had fun at the fair, at least. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, now, had a, we had fun for a while. <laughs> um, this is probably a tough one, but if you had to relocate your farm anywhere, where would you go? Oh, if I had to do this over again, I, I would... I would probably uh, locate in Missouri. We have a son in Missouri, and and uh, seems like the climate climate uh, for outdoor hogs would be a little more favorable than it is here. Uh, we have such uh, extreme highs in the summertime and extreme lows in the temperature in the in the winter that uh, you know I, I they're a little bit further south, and uh, I think that's where we would probably locate. All right, well, Larry, it's been great speaking with you. Thank you for coming on to the show today. Um, We hope you enjoy the rest of your Sunday, and we hope to have you on again soon. Okay, well, thank you very much. All right, take care, Larry. You bet. Bye.